Hey, Mosaic, how are we doing? Well, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here, and super pumped that you're here. And if you haven't been with us, uh, we're spending the summer journeying the Psalms together. And one of the unique things about the Psalms, well, this is something uh, the church has done for hundreds of years, is journeying and marinating in the Psalms. In fact, one of the un- really unique things about Psalms is they were actually songs. They're songs that were sung in the temple by God's people uh, for many, many, many years. And so this is actually the soundtrack that Jesus grew up hearing and his disciples. Uh, and so the Psalms shaped a lot of their, their thinking. In fact, they would have had most of them memorized. And so their ideas about life and humanity and God were hugely shaped uh, by these songs called the Psalms. And so we're journeying in them. And this morning I'm really excited because we're, we're going to actually spend the next two weeks uh, in Psalm 23, which if you've been around Mosaic for some time, you know uh, Psalm 23 is very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's one of easily uh, one of my favorite passages uh, in, in the entire Bible. So even like uh, several years ago when we moved from L.A. back to Lincoln with the dream of starting this community, uh, during that whole year with all the unknowns and the risk and the challenge and heartache and all the stuff that goes into starting uh, something like this, uh, Psalm 23 was one that I was just constantly in and that I clung to and prayed over. And so in many seasons of my life, that's been true. And God has just ministered to me through this a chunk of scripture that we're going to be in. So I'm excited. And one of the things that probably you already know uh, is this is also one of the most popular, one of the most famous passages of scripture uh, in the Bible. So I, I, I bet this, like even if you don't believe in God, um, or maybe you do, you're just not convinced Jesus is him, you're not particularly religious, uh, I would be willing to bet that you have heard Psalm 23. Uh, probably numerous times, because one of the unique things about Psalm 23 is it has jumped out of sacred literature and found its way into pop culture uh, in a lot of different ways, you know, and so like uh, film, it shows up in film a number of times, so I'll never forget the first time I saw uh, Saving Private Ryan, you remember seeing Saving Private Ryan for the first time, Uh, pretty emotional experience, pretty amazing film, and if you remember at the climax of the movie, Towards the end of the film, there's this really big battle scene, and this very small group of allied soldiers are defending this bridge, and Saving Private Ryan is one of them. And uh, one of the men, one of the main characters, is up in the sniping post, and just before he dies, he quotes aloud uh, Psalm 23. Another place that it shows up is in Titanic. If you remember when Titanic came out, just out of curiosity, how many of you saw Titanic in the theater more than once? Yes, all right, no shame, yep. No judgment. I get it. It was, it was incredible film. Uh, visually just amazing uh, at the time. But if you remember, again, climax of the film, the Titanic is sinking. Spoiler alert, it sinks. Um, <laughs> but there's the part of the film where that's happening. Uh, the lifeboats have been, you know, released. They're out in the ocean. And so it's just the remaining people on the ship. And there's a group of them that are huddled together on the deck around a priest, and they're holding on for dear life, and he's reading aloud uh, Psalm 23. And it shows up in older films as well. Uh, John Wayne's Rooster Cogburn and Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider uh, shows up in both of those films. And it finds itself in music uh, a lot. So if you're a 90s kid like me, uh, you know, who could forget Coolio's Gangster's Paradise, right? As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Because I've been laughing and blasting so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I could do the whole thing. I could. Uh, thank you. We're going to close in prayer. And, uh, <laughs> uh, shows up there uh, long before him, uh, Tupac Shakur, uh, one of his greatest hits. Um, 
uh, so many tears. Uh, he references Psalm 23. Uh, also, uh, Kanye West and Jesus Walks, uh, you know, which was a big one here a few years ago, performed at the Grammys. Uh, Jay-Z and Can't Knock the Hustle, which I don't know what that, how that connects to Psalm 23, but he references it there. Uh, Eminem and Rabbit Run. Uh, hip-hop loves Psalm 23. And I kid you not, last night, last night we uh, got to marry Tyler and Kelsey, now Hayes, and in between the ceremony and the reception, I stopped to get gas, and this guy pulls up to me, and he's just bumping hip-hop. And I was like, that's Notorious B.I.G., Life After Death album. So I, like, I hopped on Spotify, and I was listening to it drive around, and I'd totally forgotten this, but the last song on the album begins with a full reciting of Psalm 23. You know, and so it's, it's amazing. Um, and, and it's not just even there. If you hop on like Google or YouTube and you just do a quick search, you'll find Psalm 23. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, it's often read, as probably many of you know, at funerals. Um, I'll never forget when Whitney Houston died and they aired her memorial service uh, on television. Uh, Psalm 23 was read prominently. Or on September uh, 11th, 2001, after the attacks, George W. Bush got up when he addressed the nation. Uh, quoted part of Psalm 23. And, and so I say all that uh, simply to illustrate that there's something about this passage that, that has struck a chord uh, in humanity. For literally words that were written thousands of years ago that people continue to hold on to. And in many ways, it seems these words seem to, to hold on to them. Right, so as we come and, and, and kind of just marinate in this text for the next couple of weeks, right, one of the questions I want to begin with is, is how, how are we to approach this text? Right, how, how are we really to, what's our heart posture? I mean, how are we to understand it? Cause, and it's an important question because if you hop on, on Google and you, you know, check out all these cultural references, what you'll find, you know, even though let Tupac and Eminem and Jay-Z and all these guys quote, pieces or entire, the entire Psalm 23 is oftentimes, although they quote it, they, they miss the whole point of the passage, right? They, they adopt the language and, and the poetry, but they miss the meaning. They, they quote words that are true, but somehow in the process, they miss the deeper truths that the words of Psalm 23 are meant to point us to. So how are we to, to understand it, right? In order to really understand uh, the passage, one of the things that we have to level with is really the context in which this, these words were written. Um, because if you walk into a Christian bookstore, you're going to find Psalm 23 in, in many expressions. You're going to find it on probably coffee mugs and T-shirts and embroidered on blankets, you know, and in framed pictures. It's a very popular passage. You know, but one of the things you need to know is this. It would be wrong of us to picture David, who is the author of this passage, you know, in a hammock next to a babbling brook, dreaming up poetry. Um, most scholars agree that this is a passage that was written later in David's life when he was under duress. And if you know anything about David's life, the first half generally went really well. You know, he's called by God, anointed by God, enjoyed this very intimate, special relationship with God. But then he started making some bad decisions, right? Adultery, bad decision. Murder, bad decision. Right? Married a, a bunch of women who came from different faith backgrounds and started messing with his heart, bad decision. And so the second half of his life, he, he really didn't finish very well. And, and some scholars believe this was written in a very particular time of duress. And that was when his son Absalom uh, led a mutiny. They, they overthrew David as king. Absalom took over and him and the Israeli army were pursuing David to kill him. And so if you can imagine for a minute the fear 
the disillusionment, the stress, like the, being that place of, of just crisis and lostness. That's, it's under those kind of conditions that these words were penned. Right? So he wasn't just lounging next to a cute little river. Right? This is a man that is drowning in white water, and he's, he's praying words that he knows to be true, but he's not ex- fully experiencing right now. Right? This, these are the words of the passionate words of a desperate man who is preaching to his heart and desperately praying to his God. Which when you read it from that perspective, right, the way that the psalm begins, it just makes it that much more shocking. Right? Because the way that it, the psalm begins is this. Right? It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or shall not be in want, or I lack nothing, depending on your translation. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I lack nothing. Right? It's, it's, it's pretty amazing, really. And, and, and honestly, this morning, I just want to camp right there. And I don't even want to get out of verse 1, because I don't think we can. I don't think we should. Because verse 1, this is the hinge point of the entire passage. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. The implication, because the Lord is my shepherd... I will lack nothing. And then the rest of the passage is him fleshing out in different ways that he won't be in want. He won't be lacking anything. God is, because God is his shepherd, God is going to provide in all these different ways. The Lord is my shepherd. Being a shepherd is something that David actually knew a lot about. Right, if you remember, uh, the first time in, it, he shows up in the scriptures uh, is in 1 Samuel 16. And what is he doing? He's, he's out in the fields with the flocks. Right, David spent a lot of time with sheep. You know, so when he draws this metaphor and he compares God to the great shepherd and us as sheep, there's all kind of, of richness and imagery and nuance that David is clued into that I think because we live in 2016 in Lincoln uh, and most of us are not farmers and certainly are not farmers in the ancient Near East, uh, we don't pick up on, right? And so before we go any further, I just, I, I want to talk a little bit about, about this, this metaphor, this image, because honestly, it shows up everywhere in the scriptures, right? David kind of leads it off, but then we, we, we find it all over the place. So here's some examples uh, where we find this. Uh, Psalm 100, verse 3, right? We are God's people, the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 77, 20. God, you lead your people like a flock. Psalm 79, 13. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. And Isaiah 40, 11 says, The Lord tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. The Bible actually does this over 200 times where we are referred to as sheep or as lambs. And so I want to talk about that a little bit uh, because I'm not convinced that that's necessarily a term of endearment. Like, like if you know anything about sheep, and I've been doing some research on sheep, um, it's not exactly a compliment. You know, and so let's reflect just a little bit on the, the sheep. You know, because we don't know, think about sheep. No, no, nobody wants to be associated with sheep if you think about it. Like even when you do the personality test, it's like, oh, I'm a lion, you know, or an otter or a golden retriever. Nobody's like, sheep, you know, nobody. <laughs> and there's some reasons for that, all right? So like number one, uh, sheep are dumb animals. Uh, they're, not, they're not intelligent. Um, 
they, they are stubborn. Uh, they make poor choices, and they often repeat those poor choices, which that's a clear parallel, at least for myself. Um, chances are you've never seen a trained sheep. You know, we train lots of things, by the way. Birds, apes, dolphins, uh, dogs, uh, even mice and rats, you know. Uh, but chances are in your lifetime you're not going to see a trained sheep. <laughs> it's just not really in the cards because they're very, they're just not an intelligent, they're not an intelligent animal. In fact, I heard a story this week of this guy. He was driving and they were on this very kind of windy, tight road. And they came over a hill and there's a herd of sheep right off to the side. And they, you know, got skittish and ran. But they were running alongside this, the road. So they slowed down and just, just went alongside this herd of sheep for like 15 minutes. And the funny thing is, because they're terrified, their eyes are huge, you know, they're scared, but it's like all, it's all open pasture to the right. Like everything, you could go anywhere, anywhere, but they're so locked in to the, to the road. They just stayed right there, right where the danger was, you know, because they just, they don't connect the dots. In fact, I heard another story this week that this is pretty common. Um, you know, depending on the part of the world you're in, some people, uh, peoples and regions, they tend to keep sheep alive, right, for the wool. But there's other places where they're, they're eaten, right? So they're raised and they're, they're butchered for the meat. And sheep, they'll often, they'll line them up to be slaughtered. And there will be a person there cutting, and they'll cut the throat of the sheep. And the sheep will fall over and just, you know, do whatever they do, twitch, bleed out. And the sheep just stay in a line. And the next one takes the steps forward, like it's his turn. And they just keep killing sheep. And they just stay in line, never like putting the, the dots together. It's like, this is probably not going to go well. There's a pattern that I'm picking up on, you know. They don't. They just kind of fall in the line and, and go ahead. So they're not intelligent creatures, you know. And not all animals are created equal, and that's okay. They're just on the shallow end of the gene pool, uh, which is a Lion King reference. Uh, hashtag dad life. All right. Um, number two, uh, e- they're easily spooked. They're easily spooked. And as a kid, I had a lot of fun with this. Uh, my grandpa had a farm in South Dakota, and, and some of my favorite memories as a kid was growing up on this, on this farm, visiting grandpa. And he had cows as a dairy farm, but he also always had lots of sheep. And one of my favorite things to do was to go out into the pastures and just screw with the sheep, uh, which is very easy to do. Like I'd sneak up on them, which is very easy because they don't have keen senses. And I'd jump out and scare them and they just start running and they, they're, they're not aware of their surroundings. They just start running. And so they, they'll hit, you know, go face to face, turn into each other, or they'll turn around and run headfirst into a fence or a tree or a river. Um, it's pretty amazing. And, um, so, so for, for sheep, though, fear is just kind of their, real, their living reality. Uh, it's just a constant in their life, and there's a reason for that, which brings us me to the next point. And that is they're unable to protect themselves. Right, if you think about it, uh, you know, sheep are not inspiring or intimidating creatures in any way, shape, or form. Um, John Orberg points out in one of his books, you know, that as you look at professional and college and even high school sports teams, you don't find, you know, sheep. And there's lots of animals that you do find, right? We've got the, the bears, the tigers, diamondbacks, wolverines, badgers, sharks, eagles, hawks, bulls, panthers, bengals, raptors, bobcats, broncos, and grizzlies. <laughs> but you don't find a single team called the sheep, you know? And it's, there's a reason. Like the Kansas City sheep doesn't inspire anybody. You know, you just don't find it. And, and the reason is sheep, are, they're just not threatening. Uh, they're not strong. Their legs are very, like, spiny and weak. They're slow. Um, they have no camouflage. I mean, if anything, their wool is like a spotlight to predators, like lunch is over here. 
Um, they can't outrun predators. They can't overpower predators. Uh, and they have no defensive instincts or things at their disposal either. So they have no quills, no shell, no venomous bite. Um, they don't even have like a pungent smell to use like skunks do. Um, and so the thing is, is unless a shepherd is nearby, sheep don't have a chance. Uh, they're dead meat. They're lunch, uh, literally. Uh, number four, uh, they have limited vision. And I mean that in more ways than one. And from an obvious sense, sheep generally can only see about 15 yards, some of them less. Uh, so they can't often see what's in front of them. Uh, they, and they're not trying to oftentimes. They're just keyed into the butt of the sheep in front of them. And they're just like that herd mob mentality. You know, and so there's, there's stories. One of the things that will often happen if a shepherd's not paying attention is he'll lead the sheep up to a brook where they can drink cold, clean water coming from the high ground and there will be a mud puddle 10 feet away, and sheep will gather to drink out of the puddle that's 50% dirt, you know? And the, sheep, the shepherd will literally have to physically move them over to the good stuff because they don't have vision. They don't have sight for it. You know, one of the funniest stories I came across this week uh, comes out of Turkey. Um, and in Turkey, these shepherds, they, they had a very large flock, and they were taking a break, eating breakfast kind of down off of this hill. And they watched in amazement as this single sheep ran up the hill, jumped off a cliff, and fell to its death. And they're like, what was that about? And then, but what was really shocked them was as 1,500 more sheep followed, one by one, jumping off the cliff to their death. And they were too far away. There was nothing they could do about it, but just watch these sheep, one by one, do the exact same thing, which is throw themselves off the cliff. And a local newspaper said, as a result... 450 of the sheep perished in a billowy white pile. And the only reason it was 450 and not 1,500 is after 450, they had made together a large wool pillow, basically, and the sheep survived the fall, uh, about 1,000 of them. You know? So I was thinking about it. It's like when, when you're a kid and you did something not intelligent. You're like, well, Tommy did it. And they're like, well, if your, if your friends jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? If you were a sheep, you'd have to say, yes, yes, I would. Um, that's what they do. So they have very limited vision. And then lastly, I'll say this. As a result of all of those things, uh, sheep require constant care. Constant care. Uh, you guys, you want to throw up the photo? So this is a sheep that's not rolling over. Um, in fact, it's, it, there's a term for this. He's stuck. It's called being cast. And so the sheep is cast. So like when you read in the Bible, it's talking about being downcast or cast down. Uh, this is the imagery. It's sheep imagery. What happens with sheep is, you know, they'll start out like the one on top just laying down. But if there's a little bit of incline or a gust of wind or they're just not paying attention, once they go past like 45 degrees, <laughs> they get stuck upside down. And what ends up happening is their stomach actually fills up with gas uh, and, and immobilizes them, and then their, their feet and or their legs start to go numb. They lose feeling, and they'll get stuck there until they die if a shepherd doesn't spot them and turn them back over. And there's YouTube videos for this as well, and you'll actually see shepherds coming and, and turning the sheep back over, and it takes them a while for blood to start flowing in their extremities and for them to bounce back. It takes a long time. And so it's really interesting, and this is one of the reasons, like, the Bible— talks a lot about knowing the condition of your flocks and the numbers of your sheep because they need this kind of care and attention. In a hot climate, once that sheep rolls over and is cast, uh, a sheep might have an hour or two to live. Uh, in a mild, more mild climate, um, it has maybe a half hour or maybe a day. And that's, 
assuming that something doesn't come by and eat it. You know, and so sheep, they, they, it's just so interesting. Sheep, once they're in that place, they just can't even help themselves. So the amazing thing about sheep is even if they're in a place where there's not a predator within 100 miles and there's plenty of, plenty of water and food, they're still at risk because they're at risk to themselves, which to me is another great parallel <laughs> to us, uh, to people, to myself at the very least. You know, sheep just can't survive on their own. They're not, they're not able to. Right? Sheep don't exist because of any Darwinian idea of survival of the fittest. Uh, if it was, they would evolve something to protect themselves. Uh, but they're only alive because shepherds keep them alive. Right? Which is very fascinating and interesting for our discussion. Right? Because the parallel is drawn with us. Right? Sheep make bad decisions because they're not particularly smart. Right? They are easily spooked and often struggle with fear. Right? They cannot protect themselves and so they require constant care and provision. Philip Keller uh, wrote a book in 1970 um, called this. It's titled, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he was a shepherd for most of his life. And so he actually walks through Psalm 23 from a shepherd's point of view. And he's got this quote that is just so on the, on the money. And he says this. He writes, The quality of a sheep's life is a totally dependent on the shepherd's heart. Right? The quality of a sheep's life is totally dependent on the shepherd's heart. Right, and I draw our attention to that because this is actually what Psalm 23 is really about. It's about the shepherd's heart. You know, and we read it as, as sheep. And it's important that we understand the way in which we come to God. Right? We read it as sheep who make dumb decisions at times. Right? Who can be easily spooked and who often struggle with fear. Right? And a lot of different kinds of fear. Fear of the future. Fear of failure. Fear of what we do not understand. Fear of being wrong. Our fear of being found out. Our fear of what the world is coming to. Right? People like sheep who cannot protect ourselves from really much, if we're really honest. Can't protect ourselves from disappointment. Not from love lost. Not from job loss or economic recession. Not from sickness. Right, not from the loss of a loved one. And not, not from much of anything that life can and often does throw at us. And as people like sheep who need constant care and guidance from something bigger than us, if we are going to live the life that we were created to live. And so, so we read it as sheep. And it's important that we understand the way in which we come to God, right? Which is with everything to gain and nothing to offer. Right? But Psalm 23, what it's really about is not, it's not about valleys and it's not about banquets or cups running over or sheep. Psalm 23 is about the shepherd. You know, when I was trained to, to study scripture, I was trained to ask three questions. And there are three questions that I always come back to. They're very simple, but they give you different lenses through which to read the Bible. And the first one is what does this passage say about God? Or I'm sorry, about humanity. All right, what does it say about us? Second one, what does it say about God? Right, and the third one is, what are the implications to this? Right? How should I rightly, what would it look like to rightly respond to this passage? Or is there an action that I need to take? Right, and so if we were to read this through the first question, I think there's a lot of things that we could agree on about what Psalm 23 says about us. Right? And the other 200 passages that refer to us as sheep. Probably a number of things that we could generally agree on. But this passage takes on all kinds of new depth 
and meaning and color and life when we shift our focus from what does this say about me, about my future, about what God was going to do for yours truly, and we shift to what does this say about the character of God, about the kind of God that he is, about what God desires for me. And so I want to just practice this and do this. And so what I'm going to do is I want to read Psalm 23 for you. Right? And I want you to just even just close your eyes right where you're at. And I want you to hear this and think about this again, not in what does this mean for me and what does this say about me, but what does this say about the heart of God? The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you've been around Mosaic for some time, there's something that we like to say that we really believe here. And that is that in Jesus, we get the most vivid picture of what God is really like. And that is something that the church has believed for for literally thousands of years. That's what we believe the scriptures attest to, that the early witnesses testified to, and that human history testifies to. That Jesus was not just a man or a rabbi or a great teacher or a gifted leader, but that he was divinity with skin on. As much of God that could be crammed into a human body, that was the Son, as Jesus Christ. And so if you ever want to know what is God like, what, what do, how does he respond to people? What is his posture towards me? Who does he care about? What is he like? I would plead with you, study Jesus. Right? Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and let it, let it take your breath away. Right? Let your jaw drop open in wonder at the kind of God that we have. And you know, Jesus said a lot of things to describe himself to his disciples. You can about imagine God trying to describe to human being what's, what he's like. He used a lot of language and a lot of pictures, and oftentimes they're like, we don't get it. But he said something very interesting as it relates to our, our conversation this morning in describing himself in John 10. And so I'm going to begin uh, in John 10, verse 1. From the, and this is from the message translation. Says, Jesus said, let me see, uh, said this before you as plainly as I can. Right? If a person climbs over or through the fence of a sheep pen, instead of going through the gate, you know that he's up to no good. He's a sheep wrestler. The shepherd, though, walks right up to the gate. The gatekeeper opens the gate to him, and the sheep recognize his voice. An interesting note here. There's some really cool YouTube videos out there on this as well. I, I do spend time on YouTube. I'm sorry, a fair amount of time uh, preparing for this message. But there's some really amazing videos of sheep. So there's one video where these young men are trying to mimic the call of the shepherd to get the sheep to come down uh, out of the hills. And they're trying to mimic, you know, his voice and his call. 
And it seems like they're doing a pretty good job, but the sheep aren't moving. And then the moment that the shepherd begins his call, these sheep come sprinting down this hill, like immediately start coming to the shepherd. And then the young men jump in to try to mimic it again. And a bunch of the sheep like stop, like, wait a second, that's not our shepherd's voice. And there's some amazing videos about this where, where the shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep truly know the voice of the shepherd. This is the picture that Jesus is giving us here. And he says this, he says, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he gets them all out, he leads them and they follow because they are familiar with his voice. They won't follow a stranger's voice, but they will scatter because they aren't used to the sound of it. And then I love this. This is so indicative of Jesus' whole life and ministry. Jesus told them this simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> so he tried again. I'll be explicit then. I am the gate for the sheep. All those others are up to no good. Sheep stealers, every one of them. But the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. Right? Anyone who goes through me will be cared for. They will go in freely and out and find pasture. A thief is only there to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Oh, I love that. And then he says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and my own sheep know me. In the same way the Father knows me and I know the Father, And I put the sheep before myself, sacrificing myself if necessary. You need to know that I have other sheep in addition to those in this pen, and I need to go gather and bring them too. And they'll also recognize my voice. And then it will be one flock, one shepherd, one God, one church. This is why the Father loves me, because I freely lay down my life, and so I am free to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the right to lay it down, and I also have the right to take it up again, which we know he did three days later. I received this authority personally from my Father. I am the good shepherd. You know, sometimes we Christians in the U.S. are a little funny. Funny in the sense that uh, we love to learn, generally speaking. We love to listen. We love to study. We love to grow cognitively in our faith. We love to learn, like, theological things or historical tidbits that we didn't already know. But sometimes, sometimes I fear we do this while at the same time neglecting the small things. You know, it's like as long as I'm growing in knowledge, it's almost as if sometimes we unintentionally end up believing, as long as I'm growing in how much I know about God, some of the ways in which I'm living my life doesn't really matter. And, and I will admit, sometimes us pastors, we feed into that, right? Because we pour ourselves into study and trying to you know, deliver robust sermons, mildly entertaining sermons, whatever, you know, and we throw ourselves into, and sometimes at the same time being unfaithful in the small things. You know, and other times allowing people to sit and be church attenders and never really calling them to be disciples, followers of the good shepherd. You know, and it's fun to, it's fun to teach. I do enjoy teaching, but I think most of the time, those of us who are any pastor who's worth his or her salt, most of the time is not teaching us, the faith community, things we don't already know, but instead reminding us of what we already know and asking, are we living in light of that right now in this season of our lives? And so this morning, I have a very simple 
And yet a very profoundly important question that I want to just set before us as a community, as a family. And the real answer to this question will tell me a lot more about where you stand with God than any church attendance survey or theological questionnaire you could fill out could. And the question, as it relates to this, the Lord is my shepherd, is can, can you really say that with integrity? Can you? You know, it's hypothetically speaking, if you were just to be in the presence, the physical presence of God, and you could interact today, could you say, you, Lord, have been my shepherd? And of course, there are people in this room, you're not particularly religious, you may not be a believer at all, and of course you'd say, well, no, that's not really my goal, I'm not really bought in, I get it, right? But what about for the rest of us, right? Could you stand and say, God, I look to you and you alone, for my sustenance, for my provision, for my direction. When you say go, I go. When you say this way, I go this way. When you say stop and rest and Sabbath, I stop. Right? You alone are my guide. Right? Could you say that? Right? And, and if the answer is not, why not? What, what, what's there? What's, what's in the way? What, what might need to change right, in this, this next season? All right, so I want to I end by doing something a little bit different. And band, you guys can come on up, Keith, Evan, Megan. And what I want to do is I just want to create just a little bit of space for reflection in silence. And I know some of you just got nervous and you're starting to sweat already because generally we're uncomfortable with silence. I get it. In fact, if you're normal, it's very possible that this might be the only 60 seconds of silence you've had all week. And I get that. But I think for those of us who, as followers of Jesus, right, who are seeking to be shaped and led by the Spirit of the Good Shepherd, we need to grow in our, our comfortableness with silence. And so I want to create space for that. I never want to be guilty of just adding more noise to your life. Sometimes it takes those quiet moments for God to speak, for the spark to go off, for that moment, that turning point, that hinge point. So what we're going to do is just spend the next minute in silence. And here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to kind of ignite what you might call your sanctified imagination. Right? And just imagine and reflect on this picture that we were given uh, a couple hundred times in the Scriptures of our relationship with God. He, the good shepherd. Us, the helpless sheep. Right? The sheep who make really bad decisions at times. The sheep who are not equipped to protect ourselves from all the things that life throws our way. That need guidance, that need direction, that need care. So let's do that right now.
going to close our time this morning uh, with worship and with communion. And whether or not you call Mosaic home, if you are a follower of the Good Shepherd, you're invited to participate and be a part of this because we are all part of the same larger family of God. In communion, we reflect on the Good Shepherd. Right, and what he did for us, the one who says, I put my sheep before myself, sacrificing myself if necessary. And I freely lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own free will. And that's what the good shepherd does. And that's, that's what the good shepherd did. So we've got communion stations up here. We've got one here, one here. We've got two more in the back. We invite you to take a piece of bread that is representative of the body that was broken for us on the cross and to dip it in the juice that is representative of the blood that was spilled for us on that cross to reconcile us to God, right? to offer us life both now and eternal right? and to inaugurate the great and beautiful kingdom of God that is growing slowly but surely through the movement and family of Jesus that is this church. So Mosaic, if you would go ahead and stand, we're going to close with worship and communion.